0: This is Linux Reality, Episode 13, Users, Groups, and Permissions. Alright, hello, welcome to Linux Reality, everybody. My name is Chess Griffin, and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes or so. Last week we discussed uh, Linux package management. It was at a very basic and very high level. This week we're going to take another look at something under the hood, so to speak, and that's um, the the Linux concepts of users groups and permissions now this discussion will also be at kind of a high level and is you know really intended just like last week to sort of introduce new users to the general concepts and ideas with regards to users groups and permissions so again, this is going to be pretty basic for a lot of folks, but I think it's very necessary so first though, a point of clarification. Uh, a few people emailed me saying that they were a little confused by one of the points i made with regards to tarballs versus like say rpms for example i think the confusion was at one point i was talking about configuring the package and i had used that same term in the in, in the context of building a a package from source and so that was my mistake i just i was using the word configure sort of loosely but let me try it another way Tarballs are simply an archive of the source code. You then have to compile it and then install it manually. An RPM or a Debian package is a pre-compiled binary, meaning someone has taken that same source code and has gone ahead and compiled it for you and has given you the resulting binaries after compilation. Now, an RPM is a script that kind of wraps around those binaries and it tells your Linux system where to install things. You know, it's not When you compile an application, you're not going to end up with just one file. It's not going to be just one binary. It might have some libraries, it might have some documentation, it might have some scripts, it might have some configuration text files. So the RPM file, if you will, will tell your system where to put all that stuff. And that's what an RPM package or Debian package is. It's the binaries It's the stuff that's left over after compiling, wrapped up into a neat little package for you, and then your distribution installs everything in the right place. In other words, when you install an RPM or Debian package, there's no compilation going on. It's already been compiled. It's pre-compiled binary. Hopefully that helps. Secondly, a little piece of Linux distribution news. Um, The new SUSE 10.1 version is currently scheduled to be released this coming Thursday, I believe it is, in CD and DVD form. I'd like to discuss SUSE for a few episodes, and that might be, you know, a few episodes down the road. So if you want to follow along with that, I encourage you to kind of keep an eye on the opensusa.org website and, and take the opportunity to download and burn those ISOs when they are released. I don't know when that will be exactly, but somewhere in the next few days, hopefully. So... I will kind of give everyone a heads up, you know, ahead of time before we start talking about it, but that's just something I'd go ahead and throw out there. So with that, let's check out some listener feedback. Message for you, son. All right, first I've got an audio comment from Joe. Hi, Jess. I just wanted to say that I think your podcast is really good, I think it'd be really great since there's a lot of new Linux users just starting out and they're all confused. I've been using Linux for about six months now and the last one you did about um, package managing would have been really helpful a couple of months ago because I was using Mandriva and I just didn't know anything about repositories so I was just downloading lots of RPMs and dependencies and stuff. So anyway, uh, keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Joe, for that. Thank you very much for taking the time to send me that audio comment. It's greatly appreciated. It really is. Okay, next, I've got an email from Drew. He says, Chess, I really enjoyed finding your podcast. You do well at explaining Linux simply and clearly, and I'm going to do my best to get some of my Windows-wielding friends to listen to your podcast if they have an interest in Linux. I've been a Linux user for about two years, often with a Windows partition just for the games. I've been using Debian and learning it as I go along. Even after a few years and listening through your archives, I'm learning a lot of new things. So far, that's a lot of resources I didn't know existed. Thus, I'm also going to recommend your show to friends who have been using Linux. One thing I would really like to get from the show is an overview of applications for various tasks. Then he goes on to kind of say that, you know, it's hard for him to find a task or find an application for a particular task, and he's got to try a few different things. And um, we are going to have episodes where I kind of take an overview of different applications, like, you know, maybe we'll have an episode on FTP browsers or FTP clients or web browsers or email clients or audio clients. And so I do plan to do that, and all I can say is just sort of stay tuned. So thank you very much, Drew. And the last email I've got here is from Jim, and he says, "Chess, I finally have the time to write and thank you for your informative and entertaining podcast. I discovered your podcast just last week on iTunes and quickly downloaded the first 12 episodes. I've wanted to explore Linux for quite some time, and while I have played with the live CDs before, I knew that I needed something just like you were providing. While on business trips, I would often use the Nonfix live CD it, uh, to provide extra security to browse the Internet from my laptop while using the hotel high-speed connection. I look forward to learning much more through your podcasts. Well, that's really great, Jim. And then he also asked about using the LBox from LinuxBasics.org or VM Player. I have not used that LBox, uh, so hopefully someone from LinuxBasics.org will, you know, maybe provide us some information about it in the forums or by email. In which case, I'll I'll pass it along to you. Um, the VM Player is great. That's now free. You can get the VM Player from VMware and use it to run um, ISOs that they've provided and that the community has provided to try out distribution. So uh, it's been a long time since I've used VMware, so I haven't I haven't used it in a while, but a lot of people are reporting good success with it. So maybe we'll have to do an episode on that at some point. Well, thank you very much, Jim. I do appreciate it. So let's get to the main topic, users, groups, and permissions. <laughs> Okay, these three topics, users, groups, and permissions, kind of go together, but I'm going to take them one at a time. So let's start with users. Linux and Unix is a true multi-user environment. Windows is a pseudo-multi-user environment, meaning you can have different users in Windows, but it's really built with the idea that there's going to be one user, and that one user will be administrator, and with administrative privileges. But Unix and Linux have come come from it or, you know come to this issue from the viewpoint of creating multiple users typically you're going to have at least two users on the linux system you're going to have the root user which is the administrator and then you're going to have a normal regular user you know let's call them John for example uh, the root user is going to have the ability to pretty much do anything and everything on the system the root user is extremely powerful John the normal user is going to be Uh, is going to have much more limited rights. I mean, John will be able to do whatever he wants to do within his home directory, but outside of that, he's going to be really tied down. And that's important from a security standpoint and from a system administrative standpoint. You don't want your normal users to be able to run amok and mess things up. One of the first things you'll hear in Linux, one one mantra is don't run as root, meaning don't just log in to KDE as root with the root password and just go around KDE as root it's just a bad practice to get into it's just a bad habit because things can happen Whether even just putting aside the whole security issue of someone being able to, you know uh, break in if while you're doing that just you know you can make mistakes and it's easy to make mistakes and if you do it as root then you can't undo it so what you ought to do is create a normal user and most distributions require you to create a normal user as part of the installation process. And then you you log in as your normal user, and then there is a way for you to temporarily switch to root without logging out just for the purpose of performing an administrative task. That's the way it's typically done. That's the way most uh, distributions do it. Um, Ubuntu does it a little bit differently. Ubuntu does it kind of like macOS does, and they use something called sudo, or super user do, and the way that works is, as far as I can understand it, is that your normal there is a root user and a root password, but you don't ever see it. And the way it works is, your normal user can perform a limited set of administrative tasks, or has a limited set of administrative privileges, once the normal user enters his or her password using the sudo command. Now, there are graphical ways to do this, and there's a way to do this at the, at the command line, so I, and I don't want to get ahead of myself. But basically, long story short is most distributions require you to create two separate users, root and a normal user with separate passwords. Ubuntu and macOS, you don't create a root user. It does it on its own, and you don't even see it. All you do is create a normal user, and the idea is just that you, you, know, you, know, you use your normal user with its password to perform administrative privileges a limited set of privileges. Now, groups is a way to uh, is a way to group, if you will, users. You can create groups for any number of reasons, and your system will have some you know pre pre-made groups, and your root will your, your root user will be a member of some of those groups, and your normal user will be a member of some groups. And some distributions, uh, you know, this gets into privileges that we'll talk about in a minute, but some distributions only, you know, only allow members of certain groups to do certain things. For example, mounting your CD-ROM. We talked about mounting a little bit previously. In some distributions, your user has to be a member of the, the CD-ROM group in order to be able to mount and unmount the CD-ROM. That's just one example. Another example is as you know, you could have two users and put them in the same group to be able to access a common set of documents back and forth. That's another example. So there's a lot of different, you know, a lot of different um, uses for for groups. Now, every file and folder in Linux is assigned to both a user, which is also its owner, if you, if you will, and is also assigned to a group. So if you were to in Conquer, let's say on a right-click on a file and go down to properties and view the permissions and, and, you know section. You will see that it will say, you know, it will tell you the name of the user that owns that particular file and it will tell you the name of the group that owns that particular file. And that really leads us into the idea of permissions. Now, the idea of permissions is a way to restrict access to files, folders processes and things like that to different groups of people or to different classes is the term that's used. There are three classes of users for which you can grant different permissions. The first class is the user class or the owner class. Permissions that you assign to the user class only apply to that specific user. The second class is the group class. And whatever permissions you give to the group class, any member of that group will have those permissions for that particular file. And the third class is the other, others or, or, or the world class, meaning everybody else, meaning not the owner or the user and not the group, but anybody outside of, of those two classes. Now there are three specific permissions that apply to each class, meaning you can apply three different kinds of permissions to each of those three classes on every single file and folder in Linux, generally speaking. All right, the three permissions are the following. The read permission, which gives the ability to read a particular file or directory. The write permission, which grants the ability to modify, edit, you know, save a file or, or change a file or, or something. And the execute permission, which grants the ability to execute a file, assuming it's an executable file, like a script or an application, you know, or something like that. If it's just a text file, for example, then then the then the execute permission is kind of meaningless. But you know for for some applications it's very important so read write execute those are the three permissions that you can grant to each class so you have three classes you have three permissions for each class so that's a total of nine ticks if you will or nine different possibilities not really nine different possibilities but you have you know three three permissions for each of three groups okay now, the way you designate or you notate permissions, there's two different ways you can do it. The first one is with letters, and that's called symbolic notation. And you, you show the, the permissions by using three different letters. You use R for read, you use W for write, and you use X for execute. And then actually you use a fourth character, a dash, for, you know, null, for nothing, for no permission. And you may have seen this, like if you you have, you know, some hosting service with a provider somewhere and you've logged into their FTP server and you right-click on files or something, and, you know, you may see a bunch of letters, you know, kind of when you view a, a directory tree, maybe in a detailed view you know you'll see the name and the, and the date modified and that kind of thing the owner the group and you'll see the permissions and it's going to be designated by a string of letters and characters using this symbolic notation so when you see the string of letters you need to break it up into three groups of three let's use an example let's say you look at a particular file and the permissions look like the following rwx RW dash R dash dash. Okay. So you've got RWX, those are the first three. So those first three permissions apply to the user class or the or the owner class. The next set of three, RW dash, apply to the group class. And then the last set of three, R dash dash, apply to the others class. Okay, so going back and looking at this, that means the user or the owner has read, write, execute permissions. So the user can do anything with this file. Read read the file, write to the file, or execute the file. The second class, the group class, so anybody in this particular group, whatever the group is called, has read and write only, but not execute because there was a dash. And then the third class had read only permissions because it was r dash dash for the others. So anybody who's not the user and who's not within whatever group it's assigned to has only read permissions. So that's how you would designate the permissions for that particular file. rwx rw dash r dash dash. So for that particular file, those those would be the permissions. And you can just, with one glance, you can take a look at who the owner of the file is, what group the file is assigned to because those that would be noted right next to it and then the permissions for that particular file. Now that's not the only way to designate permissions the other way to designate permissions is using octal notation using numbers and the octal notation uses a base 8 value Three or four groups of, or three or four digits of base eight. Now, I won't get into the math, so just forget all that if you don't really care about that. But this is the way it works. You combine the permissions. Well, you assign a number, a value, to each type to each kind of permission, almost like points. The read permission is has a value of four, or think of it as you know four points. Read equals four points. Write is two or two points, and execute is one. Four, two, and one. And what you do is for each of the three classes, for those for whatever the permissions are, like in the example I just gave you, you just add up the points. You just add up the numbers associated with each particular permission. So going back to my example that I just gave you, for the user class we had RWX, we had all of them. So we had four plus two plus one is seven, okay? So you would write a seven down. The next class was the group class, and that one had what did I say? Uh, that one had R W read write, and no execute. So that one has four plus two, only. That's it. Four plus two, that's six. So you would write a six. And then the last group, the world or the others, had read only. So it was remember it was R dash dash. So that's only four. So you'd write a four. So that would be 764 permissions. And so by looking at the file, if you see a file with 764 permissions, you know you can instantly convert it in your mind. The 7 is for the user, and that means the user has everything read, write, execute. The middle number, 6, applies to the group, and that can only be read and write only 4 plus 2. And then the last number, the 4, is the others that's read-only so it's very easy and you can see why the four, four two one 421 was chosen because you know whatever number you pick there's only one combination you know you couldn't have you know four and three and two or I don't know I mean I can't think of it right now but you know you could have different combinations where you would end up with the same number using different digits to get there and that would be that would be problematic so using 421 you only have one way to get to any particular number, and uh, and so that's how you can figure out what the what the uh, permissions are. Now, there's a little bit more to the permissions because there are some other little bits that can be set in the permission. So sometimes you'll see it as four digits, you know, zero seven six four under my example, but I won't really get into that right now. But I will mention this. I'll mention what kind of the most common set of permissions are and the ones you should be careful of if you think about it using the octal notation I just gave you 777 is the maximum set of permissions that means user group and others all have read write execute that would be the equivalent of RWX 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 all across the board everything that's very powerful, obviously, so you gotta be very careful about that. It's not that common that you'd set files to 777. Sometimes, if you, if you're running like a blog or CMS or something like that on your server, it may need to have 777 permissions to your, to a, to a cache directory or something like that. So, you see it sometimes, but generally speaking, that's not that common. I would say the next set of most common permissions that I have seen is 755. That's where your user has full permissions, write, execute. But your users, I mean, sorry, the group and others have just read and execute. And a lot of times you'll see that with blog software or something that needs to be, you know, for PHP scripts that need to be executed or something like that. I don't know. But, I mean, 755 is a little bit more common than 777. It's still pretty dangerous because you do grant execute rights, and, you know, if it's a piece of code that's sitting on your web server somewhere and somebody comes along and types the, you know, the, the, you know, in the URL bar, you know, appends the script name with .php after it or something and runs the script, that could have consequences. So that, that you'd want to be very careful about that. Probably the most common set of permissions that I see is 644. And that means your user has, has read and write but no execute your groups and others have read only so or maybe 600 that means your user would have read and uh, read and write and everybody else has nothing they can't even read it so permissions it's very tricky it's very complicated it's very can be very dangerous so you do need to be very careful with that I will put some links to some to some good uh, sources I have found on the internet about this that go into a little bit more detail Again, I just wanted to provide kind of a high-level explanation of it with the two different types of notations just so people could kind of have a starting point. So I hope this has been helpful, and that's about all I got for this episode, so let's wrap it up. All right. Well, thanks everybody for the tremendous feedback you've given me. You've sent it by email and posted in the forums. If you haven't registered for the forums, please do so. And please go check it out. We have got some really good discussions going on over there. Uh, cool stuff. Some good Linux discussion and some good off-topic discussion. So, I encourage you to browse around there and uh, register. Next week we're going to do one more basic, uh, sort of under the hoods, uh, high-level view. Of the terminal and the command line very high level very basic don't worry really don't worry it's it's not going to be complicated show you some very basic easy commands just to kind of get your feet wet and I think it will be you know a good foundation for later on so I look forward to that and I hope you'll stay subscribed this has been episode 13 of Linux reality thanks again everybody really appreciate you tuning in take care I'll catch you next time bye bye